Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. very interesting conversation fred george who's a consulting developer at cnta as and he's a master change agent and you will hear number of stories um starting from being a developer in ibm uh, to taking very complex uh, engagements in consulting and how he continuously keeps skilling himself and he also shares about his wonderful uh, story around being um, a, a developer in almost 70 plus languages can you imagine 70 languages he talks about and why he continues to stay that way listen on hi fred welcome to the software people stories thank you thanks for having me thank <laughs> you for uh, joining the podcast i am sure you have given multitude of podcasts and this podcast is focused on your career journey and um, in software and what were the learnings that you had and i know you as a prolific speaker so um, without much further ado why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners well um fred george uh, quite old at this point uh, i read my first code in 1968 my first programming job was 1969 um so i've been doing this quite a long time uh and it's i'm still doing it because it's still kind of fun uh, but in any more detail it's it's hard to go through over 55 years of detail very shortly so uh we'll sort of skip over all the intermediate stuff uh, but i started out my career in uh in, in software uh after university at IBM so i spent uh, 18 years at IBM uh and that was a case where i got a chance to experience a lot of different types of technologies a lot of very bright people um a lot of very good mentors and so i think to a large degree my my great mentorships were in those ibm years people sort of taking me under their wing and telling me uh to sort of behave better uh, in my early years in ibm i was known as the angry young man um because i was always uh sort of challenging the thinking of the older people um that was just the nature of things it looked like it was wrong i'd say it was wrong uh, so um i'm still that aggressive i'm just a little more subtle now about it uh, but i still try to make my opinions known uh, and after ibm i basically went independent uh, and so did that for quite a few years uh had a couple of years with thoughtworks which brought me to india among other things um but always more in a consulting role ever since i left ibm excellent right i have a bunch of questions that i have laid out for you and uh, maybe i will start with um, the first one of uh, you know being an ibmer and even today uh, if you think about it ibm is one of the biggest uh, software provider and uh, yeah they provide right from cloud consulting to large uh, in a, a moment you say consulting the first software consulting the first company comes in is ibm in spite of so many years 
I mean, what is your perspective as to how they are able to, in, you know, invigorate themselves? Uh, I, I have read the book, um, Elephants Can Dance from IBM. I mean, uh, what is the secret sauce? Well, I, th I think to some actually, when I would join IBM, we software was not important. It was something that was just, we had to put in there to make sure we sold the hardware. Uh, and in fact, the government had sort of gotten upset with us about that. Actually, third parties got upset saying, you know, you need to separate the software from the hardware. You need to sell them separately. Um, and that was kind of the beginning of treating IBM. I've been training software as an asset. Um, again, second class asset, because I me, mean, hardware is much more important. Uh, up to the point where I was working on a project one time with uh, a thousand programmers, we took three years to develop it. And we made a billion dollars on that software. Uh, it was kind of eye-opening for IBM that said, oh my goodness, we can make a lot of money off software. So I think when the hardware has sort of become more commoditized, especially when the PC business took off and, and then the microcomputers and mini computers and all these things come out, IBM began to shift from basically a hardware company into more of a software and services business. And so that shift happened pretty much after I left. Software is making money for it, but we're still a hardware company when I left. So I think we started down that path. And I think once they realized that it's much more of a software and services sort of business, they did the things that most businesses do in that case. They, they acquire various companies. They, they obviously, you know, a relationship with Red Hat, purchased Red Hat. They purchased uh, Rational, which was the guys that came up with the UML diagrams and all that stuff. They purchased that company. They began to make, you know, collect some assets. It is very rare, and I think remember the Sun, v, uh, Sun founder basically talking about this, that a company going from a hardware to a services business is very, very difficult. It's hard to move off that, you know, off the off the hardware business. But he said IBM actually did a pretty good job of doing that. And I think you're reflecting that, that they're still still in that in that game. Um, the other thing you got to realize about IBM is they probably only have a couple of dozen customers in the world. Uh, their, their big customers are the ones that generate almost all their revenue. So they're not after you and me trying to get us into, into various tools. The, they're very much after the governments, the big banks, the, uh, the large retailers. Uh, that's sort of their market. That's where they make their, their serious amount of money. Uh, but again, they're not interested in, uh, in us as individuals. Uh, nevertheless, my lessons I learned in IBM you know, were very valuable. Um, I got a lot of exposure to executives. I, I presented to the president of IBM a couple of times, for example. Presented to the president of, of Microsoft a couple of times. Uh, wow. Uh, uh, yeah. So, you know, great exposure to the fact that executives are different animals than programmers. That the things you talk about in programmers are not the same things that executives talk about. But don't make a mistake. The executives are very, very smart people. Um, you cannot talk down to them. They, they have their ideas. Uh, but you have to learn how to, you know, meet them more than halfway. Uh, so I get those lower lessons in IBM. And, and they've, they've served me very well. I also would say IBM also sent me off to business school uh, at their expense. Um, so I got a, a degree in business uh, from the Sloan School. Um, so I was basically trained, I was a programmer who was trained to be a general manager. And IBM invested in me to do that. And I think that's the nice thing you would say about IBM is they were willing to invest in their people. You know, they sent me off to school. There was no promises I'd ever come back. There was no promises I ever work for them again. They still covered all the tuition and all the living expenses and paid my salary uh, for that entire period. Uh, wow. And that is uh, 
some extent that is a bygone era of loyalty right fred i mean uh, to some extent uh, loyalty was a given um if you think about it my father uh, worked for a single bank uh, without naming the bank now for 34 years um that was his second job and in india particularly when you have a government job you pretty much um, you know live till retirement i think that loyalty part of it i can't imagine same company ibm doing that to in today's uh, era I think IBM is still doing that because I, IBM looks at, at some of this stuff and says, "Well, I, I need to grow some executives, so maybe not the you know ranking file programmers as much, but certainly the executive ranks. They they are constantly investing in their executives. And that means making sure there's a, a young executives coming up through the ranks all the time, even if most of them at some point will leave the company. They're okay with that. Um, the ones that stay around are, are quite valuable to them." But I think when you're that large and you think about it from that scope, you sort of invest in people, just a general thing. If you're a smaller company, you say, well, if I send this person off to school, will this person ever come back? Uh, and what do I have to do? I have to make them sign a contract, make sure they come back because I don't want to take a chance on one person. If you're a company that's 300,000 people or more like IBM, you're going to make that bet regardless. Yeah, some people are not coming back, but that's okay. Others are coming back. So I think again, as a large company, they can sort of make the bet on the overall trends without having to bet necessarily on the individual. And a smaller company would have to worry about. It. Yeah, I think um, you kind of uh, talked about um, building your own path, right, from being a programmer to a management degree and knowing how to deal with the. Uh, you know executives uh, any stories that you want to share fred i mean uh, many uh, of us right when we climb up the chain or ranks we all start as programmers and uh, sometimes um, um it is often uh, said that you know if you don't address understand the programmer you know you you kind of get a brash attitude in some places which is not necessarily the most humblest of the lot right so uh, what are the few stories or you know takeaways that you would like to share with the listeners so what do you tell yourself how do you prepare the well, that I, mental I shift of, yeah so i i think um executives really only react to problems so unless you're able to articulate a very concrete problem it's not going to get executive attention you can't walk in with a theoretical problem saying this is going to happen if we do this keep doing this you almost have to wait till that bad things start happening to sort of you know raise raise that point. The other thing is thinking always in money. I have I worked with a McKinsey executive, senior McKinsey executive, one of my startups, and he said, "Well, everything's about the money." And I said, "Well, what about this?" He said, "Oh, I, I can translate that to money. What about you can translate this to money?" So from an executive's perspective, you think about what's the financial argument about what you're doing. What's the financial benefit of what you're doing? Is it given the capability for you to be faster going to the marketplace? Because that means money. Does it mean I can I can uh, catch up with the number one company by doing something radical? Uh, that's again money. That's market share. You got to be able to talk in those terms. Uh, code and how much harder it is to write the code. Need to rewrite the code. They that sort of goes over their head. It's not important to them. You got to translate that to money. As soon as I say I have to rewrite something, all they're seeing is it's going to cost me money. That's a negative thing. Oh, I can get a better time to market. Okay, that's a positive thing. So you got to put it in, the, in terms of benefits to the business itself. Uh, again, the more you can tie the money, the better off you're going to be in that argument. If something's going wrong, you almost got to make sure it goes wrong and point it out and tell it why it went wrong and how you might fix it. 
Um, most of the time when I'm working with executives, I'm about, uh, and again, I tend to go with clients that are looking to make changes. I, if a company says we're happy with where we are in the marketplace, we're happy with how things are working, I don't take them as a client. I walk away. It's just my, my impact. I can't have an impact. They don't want to change. I'm looking for the company that says, oh, we want to be better in the, in the industry. We want to catch up to the number one guy. Or, oh, my goodness, we're losing market share to you know somebody else. And how do we hemorrh stop this hemorrhaging stuff? That opens it up for the dialogue that I can have with them. And then I talk about how do you create innovation? Uh, you create innovation by killing the fear. How do you kill the fear? Well, you look at all the little sources of fear. Uh, estimates are one source of fear. Uh, you know, deadlines, another source of fear. And you sort of point these out to the executives. They understand, and they'll understand this. Oh, yeah, I've created, I'm creating this artificial fear. And why are we doing that? Well, somebody down you know, between me and the executives has sort of been asking those questions because they're afraid of something. I think the other thing you've got to realize is the middle managers, the people between you and the executives in general, are going to be risk averse. They don't want any change in, their, in the system. They're not interested in change. The only exception to that may be somebody who wants to be the CTO himself or wants to become that CEO. So you find, find a mid-range executive who's trying to get up to the top ranks, he's going to take chances. But most of his colleagues are not going to take chances. So these are not guys you're going to be able to convince to do anything different. Very interesting where you put it uh, saying, uh, identify your change agent and go along with them. Because uh, in the end of the day, uh, if you understand acutely the problem that uh, and particularly contextually, right? I think that makes all the difference. And uh, when you speak about change agent, uh, and uh, you know, when you work as a consultant and you've been in a consultant for about uh, 20 years now? Uh, oh, is I that right? since 1991. So I'm, I think we're getting closer to 35 years. <laughs> okay, okay. So about 35 years as a consultant. So my first question or as a consultant for you is, what made you propel as a consultant? I mean, it must have been hard, right? Being an employee, being in your, you know, zone of having having had such great, uh, you know, experience in a large company. What made you shift to becoming a consultant? Well, to some degree, it was a relatively safe move for me. Um, my spouse was actually also worked for IBM. And so when I walked away from IBM, she still had a job. She still had income. She still had benefits. And so I had a safety net when I was making my first forays out there. And basically, I took a year, almost took a year to sort of just retrain myself as a programmer. You know, just write code, try new languages out, try some new things out. Um, so it took me almost a year. And then I started, you know, you know, finding various engagements. And so somebody said, well, let's, we want to move Windows NT to, a, to an HP machine. Let's see if we can do that. Um, and I'm, I'm going around talking about Windows, the new Windows operating systems, the 32-bit Windows operating system. So that hooks up and we wind up you know, having engagement. Um, engagement goes very well. Uh, and, and I sort of wind up in a, in a several engagements like that that always come out very positive. And then that sort of builds yourself a level of confidence. And then I begin to realize that, yeah, things I do are, they, I can do some things that are very hard for other people to do. And the trick becomes finding an engagement, in my case, which is also hard. If someone wants to hire me to develop some web pages, I walk away because I'm not going to be better than many, many other people in doing web pages. If somebody has something they don't know how to do, well, that's, that's enticing. 
And one of the things I, I think I believe, and this is a matter of self-confidence, is that I think I can do, I may not be able to do everything, but I probably do most things at least as well as anybody else, which gives me a set of confidence going in there that says, that if it can be done, I can probably get it done. Now, part of my management training and part of my executive background helps me put a team together that helps me do that. So one of my colleagues in Norway talks about, the calls it socio-technical. Uh, it says it's sociology and technology sort of coming together, building the right sort of social team to actually execute the technology plan you have in mind. And so I spent a lot of my time tuning my teams. So one of my first engagements with, uh, when I was in ThoughtWorks, my first engagements at Nationwide Insurance, uh, they published this so I can talk about it. Uh, I made 10 staff changes in my team in the first six weeks. Uh, kick some people out, cross some different people in. I made that many changes tuning my team, which is purely management slash sociology stuff and nothing to do with the technology choices. Uh, and I continued to tune my team uh, throughout that entire project. So one of the things I, I try to encourage generally my team leads to do is, not, is you're not stuck with the people you're given for a project. You're not stuck with these guys. If they're not, if it's not a right fit, make a change. Yes, people are going to complain about changing and, and somebody's going to try to make you not, not do that. You can always win that argument. And so one of the things I will always do is retune my team as I start. And I've almost, almost every project I've had, I've kicked client programmers out of the room. Maybe somebody from the client side, and they're, they're the client, right? And you think, well, as a consultant, I can't tell the client what to do. Yes, you can. That's why you're there. You're there to tell them what to do. And sometimes you have somebody who doesn't want to work with us, work with the team, doesn't want to conform to the other norms of the team, doesn't want to try some of these new stuff. Then go back to your other job. I mean, you had a, I had a role before I showed up. Go back and do that. But you don't need to be here. You leave. And again, I, I see a lot of people saying, well, you can't change the team. This is the team I was given. No, you can change your team. Try. That takes a lot of courage. And to a large extent, being an outside in look. Because sometimes when you're an employee for long, you get painted in the same shade, uh, and all, so to speak. And um, having an outside-in view and having that courage, right? Uh, Fred, I think you know that you have a, you know, you can always come out and you have your strengths to bank on. Well, I, I think, I mean, some things work in your favor. First of all, being an outsider does help. Uh, and I would say almost every client I've gone into, there's somebody inside the client that's been saying the same things I've been saying. They just are not being listened to. But sort of my access to the executives and my way of sort of talking to the executives is something they didn't have and weren't able to pull off themselves. It also helps to sort of have the gray hair because that sort of says, wow, you've been doing this, so therefore you must know how to do this. Well, frankly, I don't know how to write you know, functional programming any better than, you know, almost uh, there are way more better functional programmers out there than I am. It's not one of my areas of expertise. There are way better database programmers out there. I'm not very good at database programming. So there are really good people in these areas that are way better than I am. Um, what they don't have is the ability to tell the executive what's going on in the executive terms. To sort of understand what the executives care about and making that, making that bridge. Or realizing that, you know, that middle manager, he needs some indication that progress is being made. I mean, he's, he's, he, he's responsible for it. I mean, people are looking at him to make get sure the object's done. And he looks at the team and says, well, you know, give me some feedback. Tell me how it's going. Well, you know, it's going fine. Well, that's not good enough. Give me some more. I, that's, I can't trust that. Um, and so one of the things I focus on is what metrics I can push up to the executive to all, all the way through the management chain to show progress. 
Because if I can't push a metric back up, then they're going to turn around and put one on me. And what they like to put on you is deadlines. So it's this, it as much functionality, and here's the data I got to have it on. And it's like, uh, and you're going to commit to that, right? And you say, well, I'm not sure. Well, it, I, I'm, it's a commitment. And of course, that creates fear. And of course, it's not my schedule and things could happen. But if you're pushing metrics the other way, then you're showing, here's my progress. Here's how fast I'm working. So they're seeing you're making progress all the time. And teams are reluctant to report to management about what they're, what's going on. Uh, and therefore, management, therefore, puts things on you. If you really want them to stay out of your hair, you need to be talking to them. Make sure they understand exactly what's going on with you so they go worry about this other team who doesn't want to talk to them. Because as a manager, you always go, you know, always go to the area that's unknown. So if, the, if you're giving them information, they'll go look somewhere else because these guys aren't talking to me. So I'm, I'm worried about these guys finishing their work. Yeah, that's the paradox of uh, being agile, uh, to so to speak, right? Um, many people say, okay, if I become too transparent, there'll be more micromanagement. Actually, it's not the case. If you become more transparent, it's easier to ask for help. It's it's a lot more easier uh, to get autonomy. And I, I mean, when I say transparency, showing your progress, showing the problems, and uh, showing your you know successes, right? Uh, Fred? Yeah, and and is you got to get almost got to realize the job of management is to is to work for the team. So it's called management inversion. Uh, there's lots of other terms for it. Good managers do practice management inversion, which means they're there to help you. So if you're having trouble getting resources, these are the guys that can fix it. Um, if you have, if you are having trouble with some team member, these are the guys that can help you fix that. Uh, and there's a great reluctance to use them as a resource, but your manager is just as much a resource as your keyboard or your mouse or your compiler. Um, they're perfectly good resources, and they're very easy to some level to manipulate. Um, you go into the manager, you say, oh, poor manager, I'm having just trouble. I don't know how to get it fixed. And you give them the little puppy dog eyes and, and they just want to help you. And that, so you can give them assignments. It, it works very well. Um, and so let them go fight some battles for you. Don't, don't be afraid to have that discussion. Absolutely. I, I mean, um, you uh, when you started about how you started consulting, you put, uh, you uh, touched upon a very critical subject, right? In terms of skilling yourself when you started something and then uh, sort of when you start skilling, you also think that you can do, I'm, I'm writing your thoughts in terms of, you know, most things uh, you, you do as good as anybody else. I mean, how do you derive that strength? Um, I mean, any stories there you want to share, Fred? Well, I, I think to some degree, you, we can talk about what I look for when I recruit. Because one of the things about our field is it's constantly changing. So when I'm recruiting uh, programmers for my team, I'm looking for two different traits. I'm looking for people that are willing to learn, uh, and that can be shown up by let's look at their GitHub account, see what they're playing with. Do they go to do they go to basically in open source projects? Do they go to meetups or whatever? Show me that you're actually trying to you know basically learn more. And I'm also looking for that they can have great conceptual skills. In other words, I can think about a problem in an abstract fashion. If you have those two skills, I can teach you all the rest. You will be successful in the systems I put together. Um, so that's what I'm looking for with that. And it doesn't, if somebody comes in and says, by the way, I'm a Java programmer, um, I'm very suspicious. If you put any adjectives in front of the word programmer, that means you're constraining yourself to just that one language. 
And of course, when things happen and things change in your career, then all of a sudden you're not valuable to me anymore. I want you to come in and be a programmer. It means if you're going to learn a new language, that's fine. Don't worry about it. It's another language. In my career, I've used, I've counted up at least 75 languages I've used. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the CSS, you know, today a CSS is HTML. There's some, obviously a lot of CSS sort of tools. You can use CSS around. Now you're into Kotlin, uh, C Sharp. I just wrote some frameworks. I wrote some frameworks in Python and some in JavaScript and TypeScript. Um, if you just say I'm a I'm a Java programmer, then you're not then basically you're not going to be successful in, in my world. Um, you got to think I'm a programmer. I'm going to learn, keep learning. I mean that is the key, right? In terms of you know, uh, don't put yourself in a box. Often uh, programmers say, "Hey, I uh, it's somebody else doing it." I think that sort of reflects uh, victimhood. Uh, more and more, you uh, you know, you show you become your victim. You show yourself as a victim. Others will also treat you that way. Uh, you say, no, no, this is my world is expansive, and I am. This is the my playing field, and that sort of reflects uh, the kind of work that you attract as well. Well, but also you see job titles getting in the way. So a little of this is also the company's fault because they're going to bring you in. They're going to call you a junior junior Java programmer. And then you're going to be a junior, you know, staff Java programmer. And then you're going to be a Java tech lead. And so they're these sort of roles when, in fact, they don't want to, shouldn't be doing that. Um, so I did a startup in California. We had only one title for our developer. It was developer. There was no adjectives in front of it. They were called senior or staff. Or There's just one title called developer. And by the way, the business side was only one title for them, business guy. That was it. Um, because we didn't want to get caught up into the title game uh, because we were programmers. So it turned out we wound up using Clojure. We kind of using a little bit of Node.js, um, but that's not where we started out. We just started with a bunch of programmers because they were just developers. That's what they were. Um, so I think, I think to some degree there's, there's systems in place to sort of basically have institutionalized waterfall by our computer titles. Our, our titles for our programmers basically reflect waterfall. You're going to be QA. You're a, you're a, you're a front end guy. You're a back end guy. You're a Java programmer. All these titles sort of put you into pigeonholes for waterfall, and yet stifle your career growth. In order to break through that, you have to leave the company and go work somewhere else. I mean, that's a horrible thing to make you do just to get better skills. Yet that that's what companies are forcing you to do. True. Uh, in fact, uh, the recent one, I actually saw the title called uh, Terraform uh, DevOps Engineer as a title. Like, how can you, it, DevOps is basically a tool chain. You have, you got to know at least a bunch of them to actually be able to do it. Like, how, how can people have such so specific titles? And then, um, then you say, okay, then uh, the uh, skills are not available in the market. I often find it uh, very funny um, uh, when uh, company uh, company executives come and talk to me about it. I'm like, okay, what are you looking for? Um, they 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 also get into the saying that okay, we got a recommendation to do this this and this tool. This is what we are looking for different engineers to do this. And then when they don't work with each other. Uh, you have a different set of a problem. So I say we are in, we are inventing our own problems rather than solving for it and looking at the big picture, right? 
Yeah, and I, I think, again, sometimes the job description is, well, human resources turns around and says, well, what do you need? Well, I need a program that does this because that's what we're going to be doing next week. So this is what you're going to ask for. Well, in fact, if, you, if you're going to hire somebody permanently, you want to make sure they're a programmer, right? You don't want to make it so narrow that, that basically you either can't find them, or if you do find them, they're never going to grow into anything else. Um, now, there is always a role for the sort of the Uber expert, whether it's an Uber database expert or a front-end engineer or whether he's using, you know, the latest tools. There's always a role for that sort of expert. But the majority of the developers should be more generalist. They should be able to adapt to whatever needs to be needs to be done today. And those are the guys that make great, you know, guys and gals that make great long-term programmers for your for your organization. And talking about, um, you know, choosing your own team and uh, being able to uh, be fearless about it, right? And and continue to be continue to select um, based on a couple of criteria that you we have laid out. Um, I have done this many times when I coach the teams. When the when a team member is not a right fit for the team, um, you just remove one person and change that the change the different persona of a person. I've seen dramatic difference uh, in the how the team behaves with each other and how they work. I think uh, that is a skill. Some sometimes I feel our uh, middle management are not very well taught. They think that the hero of the team, if they are removed out of it, they feel that you know they are they, they are inflicting a handicap on themselves. I mean, that, I I wonder how we can inculcate that sort of a thinking, saying that it's uh it should be some of all the people, and sometimes as a team, it's much more than one person's output. Well, again, if you're doing this from the middle manager perspective, you're probably too far removed from the, the actual workings of the team to make that decision. Um, so what you really want to do is push that decision back into the team. You know, we want the team to decide who should join, but also you, you respect the team when they decide to kick somebody off the team. Um, we used to call it vote somebody off the island to, to go off one of the uh, TV shows, the reality shows. Um, yeah, if the team says this person is not fitting, then basically the job of the middle manager is to take that person off the team and then go figure out what the problem is. Um, yep. But certainly then making the decision about what the right team is without being part of that team is a problem. There's also some social science in, in here. If you have a team together for at least six months without a change, that team is stagnating at that point. There are no new ideas flowing with that team. They've already had all the conversations about what tools they want to use and what techniques they want to use, what the architecture is, those discussions have been had and been resolved. And they've stopped thinking. So if you're not stirring that pot, you know, regularly, you know, every three months or so, sort of stirring that pot in some degree to sort of bring in some new flavors, you don't have the innovation. The innovation will stop flowing. And software is all about innovation. If if every piece of software to some degree is innovative, in other words, if it was if it already existed, we would just buy it or use use the library. So every time somebody's writing some new code, it's because we're solving some small problem that's never been solved before this way. That's it's called innovation. It can't be scheduled because how, how do you schedule innovation? How, how do you say, well, yeah, we're going to invent something new today. You've got three hours to make it happen. Um, it doesn't work. Um, so you want to sort of create the environment for that innovation and then you make sure it happens. So, But you're also going to be aware of the stagnation of innovation that will occur where the team has been kept together. 
And from a middle management perspective, well, I got these guys in there. I put the team together. I've got they've been working together for for six months. I'm not going to touch the team because I still need them to work. I've trained them. Don't touch my team. Well, in fact, you got you should touch your team because they're stopped innovating. They're not going to come with any new ideas. They're going to be stuck back in the past, um, and you're losing the opportunity to sort of you know get them excited about what they're doing again. Uh, even just bringing in a fresher. Um, just asking the stupid questions a fresher might ask will actually cause them to rethink some things. I, I actually uh, call this as a beginner's mindset. Typically, when you have a fresh uh, pair of eyes, often, um, you know, people ask us why innocuously. I think that's a power by in itself. I think sometimes I think that by in itself gives that. I think, but I've never seen thought of it as six months. Somehow, when I uh, consult I normally use a eight month period, but maybe say six months is a good uh, period. H have you used this uh, six month um, period often, Fred? I I do I do stir my teams aggressively. So when I had uh, when I was working in Bangalore, um, and I had uh, four teams, I think in Bangalore, one team in in Minnesota, back in the states, uh, I would move one person from each of the teams every four weeks and move them to a different team. Um, and yeah, every time I try to do that, they would sort of yell and scream about, oh my goodness, you're breaking up the family. We're going to decommit our schedules. And then about a week later, say, oh my goodness, this new guy you gave me is amazing. He's brought some new ideas to the team. And you say, okay, fine. You, you understand that. And then another, then I change again a month later and they, oh my goodness, you break up the team. <laughs> I hear the same whining all the time. Um, there's one of those things I actually forced on, on the team, even though, you know, I hate forcing things like that, but that's one of the things I forced because I knew I needed to keep stirring the teams up, uh, even though they'd always scream and yell about this. It's one of the few things I kind of would, would push. Now, again, I, I know about the six months I've been training. That's part of the things we picked up in business school. Um, we studied innovation in business school and how to create innovative environments. And that was one of the things we pointed out very quickly. So I'm always stirring the pot. Now, most new it. projects, not a problem, because new projects are new products. You get bringing people in all the time. New things are starting up. It's, it's always that way. Oh. And I think stirring the pot, I love it. Uh, I, I have never used the term. I used to call it as, you know, rotation and some of some very uh, basic uh, term. I like the uh, stirring the pot term. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's kind of like you, that pot is set there with this, the same over six months. It's, it's kind of got scum on top of it. It's, it's stagnant. And, and, Nothing magic is happening there. And it's time to stir something else in there, you know, create a different flavor, see what happens. Um, usually only good things. We had a case when I was working in uh, in London at a different startup where the pro we had a bunch of programmers were working in Google advertising. Um, and the manager actually hired a PhD from Cambridge in statistics and dropped her into the team. It was a woman, she had to be pregnant as well, uh, dropped her into the team. Now, all of a sudden, the team is starting to worry about big data, doing analysis and stuff like that, because we stirred something in there. There's no way the programmers would have ever hired a PhD from Cambridge in statistics. That would not be their next hire. They'd hire some programmer that looks like themselves. So this is a fact where managers sort of took the innovative approach, saying, I know what I need to stir the pot. When I was working at the Daily Mail, I, I brought in closure programmers. I mean, we were a Java shop. I brought in functional programmers. I brought in Ruby programmers. I brought in Node.js programmers just to stir the pot. And so we wind up using basic closure and, and Node.js in the long run. Uh, it's, and those were a key, key to our successful use of tools. 
But part of it is also just stir the pot. Bring it, make people start thinking again. And by the way, they had titles like Java developer and Java lead and all these Java titles, which of course were irrelevant when we're using Clojure and Node.js. Very, very well put. I think what you're saying is, uh, you know, you cross-pollinate ideas. What happens is you take the strength out of uh, different techniques as well as uh, technologies, right? I think uh, makes perfect sense. Um, just one we talk, last... about, we talk about diversity, and sometimes diversity is sort of interpreted as gender diversity or, or orientation, sexual orientation diversity, or sometimes cultural diversity of types. I'm looking for thinking diversity. That also means a functional program doesn't think about a problem the same way an object program does. And that, they think different than the QA does versus a front end developer that's seeing customers and users and stuff like that. So these are this is diversity as well. If you put these people in the same room with these sort of diverse backgrounds, you create a little bit of conflict there. I mean, again, in the innovation training, we learned that innovation occurs in zones of discomfort. So by sitting there, by having a front-end guy working with a back-end guy as a pair and trying to get something done, they're not terribly comfortable with each other about that. They understand where the other people's coming from. But that creates the innovation. They come up with different ideas with the genesis of these ideas. If you study, uh, you know, what people get Nobel Prizes for, they, oh, Nobel Prizes are awarded for things they do in their 20s. And this is the point in time where they've been through the university, they've gone, to, they've gone through the PhD studies, they've studied all these different fields, and they put these different fields together in some new way and built on top of it by merging these ideas together. It's the, it's the genesis of all these ideas and coming up with the next innovation. And then they just stay on that innovation the rest of their career. They never innovate again. They're all, they just stay in that little niche they stayed, they started in. But the Nobel Prize they get when they're 60 is actually what they did in their 20s when, they, when the innovation was occurring. So taking that to heart, you're always trying to create this sort of a bit of discomfort, this, the genesis of different ideas coming together. Certainly gender diversity and sexual orientation diversity always helps, but also in cultural diversity. Our London startup, we had 35 people when I joined the London startup. Uh, we, we came from 15 different countries. So in the first part, we heard Fred talk about his various experiences. And we are stopping at a point where uh, he talks about thinking diversity. And he's going to also share some of his stories on building thinking diversity. Now, we have the second episode that is dropping on next Tuesday. Please listen in and give us feedback. Thank you. We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people's stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.